This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. And welcome to Bodies of Horror, the podcast where we look at all of our favorite horror films from the classic, the camp, to the cringe, through the lens of disability. My name is Nicole, I am your host, and I am thrilled to have you here. What is on the examination table for this episode? Well, I'm going to be talking about Fetty Alvarez's 2016 film, Don't Breathe, starring Jane Levy, Dylan Minnette, and Stephen Lang as the character I'm going to be focusing in on, The Blind Man. This film was Fede's feature film follow-up to 2013's reboot or remake of Evil Dead. I say that because he did direct an episode or two of the From Dust Till Dawn series in between time. This film did quite well at the box office, almost $90 domestically, with a worldwide box office of around $150 million. And this was on a budget of $9.9 million. And this spawned the 2021 sequel. Fede was originally going to direct the sequel, but it ended up being directed by his Don't Breathe and Don't Breathe 2 co-writer. Not the sequel much at all, outside of some bits to discuss the blind man's kind of arc. So use that as a disclaimer of sorts. Now, in some interviews and things I found while doing some research about the film, Fede seems to voice two things in particular as being on his mind with Don't Breathe. He wanted to, I guess, speak the criticisms of the goriness of Evil Dead and wanted to create a film that played with or subverted expectations or tropes, both of the home invasion subgenre, and of having a blind character at its center. For the home invasion piece, he wanted the story framed from the perspective of the home invaders, and for our empathies and sympathies to lie there. As for the second part, the subverting the tropes and expectations around a character with a disability, well, that's why we're here. So let's get into it, and let's talk Don't Breathe. Your lips look sore. That's how you're making your cash out there? <laughs> what do you say you and I move away from mom together? It's a promise. You're leaving? Yeah, as soon as I have the money. When are you coming back? Never. Yo, I got our ticket out of here. Rumor is this guy is sitting on at least 300K. Boom! That's her guy. Wait, is he blind? You messed up to rob a blind guy, isn't it? Just because he's blind don't mean he's insane, bro. Guys, money's probably in there. Who's there? Stay right there. 
How many of you are there? <laughs> Man, I just let me go, please. Okay, I swear to God. Alright, so let's get into our plot synopsis, and I decided to change things up a little bit, and not do Wikipedia, but make this an original. So, let's do it. Rocky, her boyfriend Money, and their friend Alex use access via the security company Alex's dad works for to get into houses and steal. They only steal items, never cash, and never that exceed an amount of $10,000 in value. They are surviving, but all three, excuse me, all three long for lives outside of their Detroit, particularly Rocky, who is from an abusive home and takes care of her younger sister, Diddy. So they up the ante on what they hope will be their last job. A disabled vet, blinded during combat, received a settlement after his daughter died in a hit-and-run, and, excuse me, and if these three can steal the cash, they will have enough cash to move on to the next phase of their lives. Money shows them that the risk is minimal for this job. The neighborhood is essentially deserted, and the target seems to be a recluse. Alex is against it, highlighting every risk this job comes with, but expressing also some concern that, hey, feels a little odd to be, you know, going after someone who is blind. But Alex has some pretty intense feelings for Rocky and agrees to be a part of the job. They arrive at the man's house that night. Money thinks the man, not named in the films, but has been given the name of Norman, so that's what I'm going to use, is knocked out upstairs. He had gassed his bedroom, but Norman comes downstairs when Money shoots a lock off of a door to get to the safe. As they get to the safe, Norman shows up, and Money is killed. Rocky and Alex grab the cash and decide to leave the house through the cellar door, that they noticed earlier. They are able to get to the cellar and discover that he has been holding the young woman responsible for his daughter's death captive. Rocky release her, and just as they're about to escape, Norman meets them at the cellar door and shoots, 
killing the woman, Cindy. A chase through the cellar ensues, and Alex knocks Norman out, allowing Alex and Rocky to get upstairs. They are chased by Norman's dog upstairs. Norman has come to as the pair are trying to make a break for it. Alex falls out of a window onto a skylight, which Norman shoots to land Alex in a utility room where he goes and stabs him with garden shears. Come back to that. And Rocky is caught by Norman in the ventilation duct. Rocky comes to and is now in the same part of the cellar where Cindy had been held captive. Norman tells her that Cindy was pregnant with his child. He had artificially inseminated her to give him a replacement. With Cindy dead, Rocky will be the incubator, and he assures her that he will let her go in nine months. Alex, alive because Norman had actually stabbed Money's body, and not Alex, upstairs, gets the job on Norman, and he and Rocky flee for the front door. Alex is shot, and Rocky is chased and cornered uh, in the car by Norman's dog. She manages to get out of the car, only to be captured by Norman again. She escapes Norman's house after she sets off alarms and bashes him a few times with a crowbar. Rocky walks out with the money, assuming that he is dead. The film ends with a flash forward, and we see Rocky and Diddy getting ready to board onto a train to their new life on the West Coast. A new story comes on television to inform us that Norman has lived, and there's some news that he'll be released from the hospital soon saying his injuries had been the result of self-defense of a home invasion that had left his two attackers, Money and Alex, dead. No mention of either Rocky or the cash that she had fled with. So, I want to build this conversation around how this film does or does not do what Fede intended with subverting the expectations and tropes with the character of Norman. I want to start with uh, Money's quote. Just because he's blind doesn't mean he's a saint. This is in the trailer and it's um, spoken right after Alex, you know, expresses his concern that hey, this guy is blind, this feels kind of messed up. Now, money isn't wrong in that nobody, disability or no, is a saint. I think that this is just a line in the film to kind of tease us for what is to come later on. The idea touches on something that I talk about constantly here, and that is the mix of infantilization and assumed victimhood of folks with disabilities, while also using those elements to make them capable of monstrous acts. Let's consider these numbers released from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Between 2017 and 2019, persons with disabilities were victims of 26% of all non-fatal violent crime, while accounting for about 12% of the population. That's really important there. The rate of <coughs> excuse me, violent <coughs> victimization against persons with disabilities, which were 
uh, we're given the number here of 46.2 per 1,000. This is age 12 or older. was almost four times the rate of persons without disabilities, which would be 12.3 uh, per 1,000. So that's another, I think, important number to keep in mind. Now, here's one stat that I think is particular, particularly relevant here. One in three robbery victims had at least one ability. So let's get back uh, to the story here. These three go with the robbery plan because they think that Norman is an easy target. The home invasion film where the owner is someone with a disability is basically a subgenre in and of itself. And I've covered a number of these films here. You've got Hush, Wait Until Dark, and See For Me. And they all have this particular element in them. The homeowner or kind of resident uh, is someone with a disability. But these films make those protagonists ones we root for from start to finish. Don't Breathe tasks the viewer with something I think is kind of impossible right from the jump. And that's understanding and having some empathy for everyone involved. So, and, and this happens before it turns everything on its head once we see the horrors in Norman's cellar. This becomes even more complicated, I think, in the sequel. So Norman is alive and has, I guess, found his replacement daughter that he so desperately wanted in the character of Raven. Raven enters his world in, I guess, a more palatable way than rape. He finds her as a young child following a house fire caused by her parents' meth kitchen. Both parents survived. The father did time, and the mother's heart and lungs were completely damaged from the fire. Raven's parents, mainly her father, and kind of his crew, are Norman's new band of invaders to fight off as they come to steal back, question mark, Raven, so she can be harvested for a heart for her mother. Norman saves Raven, and when she comes uh, to him at the end as he is dying, and I'm using dying in air quotes here, he confesses everything to her. Everything from how he found her to his crimes of rape and murder. He very specifically uses the word rape here as well, because in Don't Breathe, he very directly tells Rocky that he never had sex with Cindy, therefore he's not a rapist. All of this is really just to give Norman that full redemption arc. So the next trope I kind of want to dig into here, and it's one I think the film wrestles with, is one I've missed previously uh, as well. But I'm going to use the words of past podcast guest Ariel Basca from her amazing piece on Don't Breathe in Ghouls Magazine, which I will link in the show notes. But this is a, a piece of what Ariel had to say. Too often, on screen, characters with disabilities have to develop magical or preternatural 
powers to make up for their loss somehow so that they can be viable villains. Lang, Stephen Lang, who plays the blind man, uh, is allowed to be terrifying even as he shoots into the dark and misses. The terror he inspires comes entirely from his machinations and obsessive quest to replace his lost daughter. So I really love how Ariel phrased that. Norman isn't a character that has an additional or enhanced sense or ability to make him either more likely to survive or to make him more evil. An important distinction in that those enhanced abilities have been the saving grace for virtuous uh, characters as well. So think of all the places we've seen the blind seer character or the disabled superhero. Think of the comic book character of Daredevil where you get chunks of both. I think I would give here is that instead of giving Norman these very kind of souped up uh, abilities or kind of an enhanced uh, sense of some kind via magic, we give him the next tier combat abilities and physical strength. As Ariel points out, he does miss, you know, he stabs Money's body, not reali realizing it isn't Alex in the moment. Uh, but he never really seems to miss when it counts. And again, just kind of that really brute force and strength that can seem, you know, a little bit turned uh, to 11. I do think that the film uh, does strike some kind of balance. So it doesn't feel as egregious and it's not something that is really bothersome like it would be, I think, in some other examples. So while I'm on the topic of realism, I think Ariel hits on something different that I think is so important to highlight here, and it is a perfect place to talk about overall portrayal of blindness and disability. So again, I'm going to use her words because I think they're pretty perfect. Lang's character has real vulnerabilities, both sensory and physical. One of the most frequently misunderstood sensitivities suffered by the blind even makes its way on screen. As one character suddenly opens the door, there is an implication of pain with his light sensitivity. Often, light sensitivity is misunderstood by people as impossible for the blind to experience, and even this subtle implication in the movie made me want to cheer. As the intruder escapes into the street to yell, You're worthless out here. He is, in fact, anything but, as long as he has his wits about him. Realistic portrayal of disability is in the detail. I think that that's something that Ariel is kind of getting at here. Portrayals steeped in generalization and broad strokes do us all a huge disservice, and it is a bit sad that we have to cheer or feel a sense of happiness when someone does something right. Disabilities are a spectrum, and when portray portrayals veer from, you know, only one of the very ends of the spectrum, it allows so many of us to get a moment of yes to what Ariel was speaking about. 
Now, there is a flip side to this discussion of realistic portrayals of disability, and that's firmly rooted on who is playing the role. Stephen Lang is not a blind actor, and I've talked quite a bit about why actors with disabilities are vital, important, and still largely missing when it comes to representation of disability on screen, and also notably behind uh, the scenes as well. Dominic Evans wrote an outstanding piece over at the uh, Center for Disability Rights called Don't Breathe Uses Blindness as a Plot Device While Casting a Seeing Actor. And he hits on a slew of issues around casting non-disabled actors in disabled roles. I'll also link this in the show notes, and as with Ariel's article, I really highly recommend you check it out. But I want to share just a, a bit of what Dominic had to say that really stuck out to me. This is a major problem with non-disabled people playing characters with disabilities. They believe disability is nothing more than a set of physical characteristics, even when the disability is, in, is in, invisible. So, <clears throat> a little context here. What Dominic is responding to is uh, how Stephen Ling talked about his approach to the character. In a number of interviews, Lang talked about his research, you know, mainly consisting of watching videos of blind people and practicing certain activities with limited vision so that it would seem or appear more natural. Now, I can get where Lang is going with that second bit, I guess, but it still comes across as a form of mimicry instead of understanding, and particularly understanding some of the nuances of being blind or visually impaired that Ariel alluded to. Someone that isn't blind simply can't watch some YouTube videos and wear a blindfold to walk around their apartment and think that they have a grasp on what it's like to be blind. Not even a little bit. To underscore this, Dominic includes this quote from Ling. I worked closely in concert with Fede because he's the one who's looking through the lens. He's the one who can tell me if what I'm doing is believable. I did my homework too, though, so I could have an understanding of what some of the physical behaviors are. So that quote there is from a Daily Dead article, and I think you can see what those issues are at hand. It is a reliance on conveying blindness through broad strokes of physical gestures and getting the validation from another sighted person. It doesn't really work that way. And again, it really speaks to the need of authentic portrayal, <laughs> excuse me, these more authentic portrayals where you have individuals with disabilities, um, you know, being able to kind of lead that. Again, highly recommend uh, checking out Dominic's piece because I think it's so well written and he really does a great job at <laughs> tying all of these uh, issues back to kind of some core 
um, ideas around ableism and why it is so important to have disabled actors cast in roles of disabled characters. So check it out again, linked in the show notes along with Ariel's piece. I also have um, a couple of interviews with Stephen Lang linked so that if you want to kind of read through those, when he talks a little bit about his process of getting into character for Norman or the blind man. And um, I think that's, it's kind of interesting. He talks about the uh, contacts that he wore. They were very specific kind of contacts because they wanted it to have a particular appearance based on the injury that Norman had suffered uh, in combat with a piece of shrapnel in his eye. And so it's really interesting stuff. And, um, you know, I think that it also speaks to, you know, it's, it's when we talk about issues of, you know, a portrayal not really hitting all of these authentic notes, it's not us saying that they're doing it with a, a feeling of malice at all. But I think it's important to talk about these issues. So um, all of that will be linked in the show notes. Definitely worth checking out. So, yeah, I think that's going to kind of wrap it up. We we moved through things quickly this uh, this episode. So um, I hope that this has been kind of interesting. I've been kind of hesitant on how I wanted to talk about Don't Breathe because it is a really complex film, especially when you're talking about the character of the blind man. Um, I think for a lot of different reasons, and I hope I at least touched on them. Uh, I I really do like the movie. I love Home Invasion, and I think that the first film is quite good. It really doesn't waste any time. I think the film comes in at just under 90 minutes, so the pace is really, really great. I love a Home Invasion film that, you know, really does have that quick pace, because when you're in one setting, I think that really helps to keep that tension and kind of dread, you know, kind of mounting appropriately. So yeah, I think 2016 Don't Breathe is quite good. I think that the goals that Betty had set out, you know, to kind of subvert um, some expectations or some tropes uh, with kind of the home invasion subgenre and the characters, I think is actually successfully accomplished on a lot of fronts. I think it's just a really tight story. The pace is amazing and it just works. The second film is a huge mess to me. I really don't like it, but I, there's a couple, I guess, sequences that are interesting, but I don't know. I, the, the arc of the character of Norman or the blind man just, I think, leaves a, a pretty sour taste in my mouth. And, and there just isn't really a lot to, you know, kind of hang your hat on, I guess. So highly recommend Don't Breathe. Don't necessarily recommend Don't Breathe to it all, but, you know, every film is going to be someone's favorite film. So... I don't know. Maybe that is yours. Maybe it will be yours. 
who's to say? But yeah, so that's just kind of my general feelings. And yeah, um, that's Don't Breathe. Thank you so much, as always, for being here and listening. It means the world to me. And of course, a huge thank you to Anatomy of a Scream and the Paw Squad fam, the home of Bodies of Horror. I know I say this all the time, but I'm assuming that you've subscribed to the feed. And if you haven't, what are you doing? Get on it. Amazing shows and just a absolutely phenomenal group of folks who are putting out some amazing, amazing podcasts. And new shows are dropping all the time. So I think it's really exciting and just well worth a subscribe and listen. If you want to reach out to me, I love that. I love hearing from folks. You can reach me by email at bodiesofhorror at gmail.com. And I am back on Twitter. I don't know for how long, but I'm there. And it's not terrible. We're, we're striving and thriving. And you can find me at bodieshorror on Twitter. And, of course, all of that is going to be in the show notes as well. But, yeah. I love to hear from folks, so drop me a line, um, say hello, and, you know, if you have any suggestions for shows or topics that you think would be really interesting uh, to cover, I love that. I'm always looking for new films to watch or just some new things to kind of dig into, research, and get an episode on. There's some really cool things in the work that I'm very, very excited uh, about that are coming down. Uh, the pike a bit, so um, I hope that you'll stay tuned. And that said, until next time. The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.